Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Protone Pedals, the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere. Go to protonepedals.com to take your tone to the next level. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. This is A.L. Levy, and you're listening to the very first Tips and Tricks episode of the Joey Sturgis Forum podcast. With me is my co-host, Joel Wanasek. Mr. Joey Sturgis is out this week, but we still love him. And with us as well is our guest host, Mr. Dan Korneff, who will be on in a little bit. So you're on the last day of a record? Yes, I am. I'm finishing up Righteous Vendetta for Street Smart. And I've been in the studio for, I think, six weeks straight with them. I don't even know. I've kind of lost count. It's been a long time. And by the time I'm done mixing this, it'll probably have been about two months. So I'm a little bit stressed out because you know how it is it's like you never ever no matter how long you put into a record it's never enough time so if you've got a month to do it you'll get it done in a month if you've got two weeks to do it you'll get it done in two weeks if you've got six months to do it you'll use all six months so i've got like a five or six i don't remember exactly man team working on this record and we've all put in a ton of time on it and i think it's going to be really really cool but it's just kind of like, you know, my singer's fly, flying out today and I'm like, all right, well, let's just make sure that we, you know, because I just got like the vocals back yesterday and I'm listening to them and there's some things I didn't like how the editor did. And so I'm kind of just in full freak out mode right now. I totally understand. And I've always wondered why that is. But, you know, I've wondered if it's human nature to just procrastinate but you're not a procrastinator we've actually been hustling though the whole time like just going hard you know like (laughs) yeah exactly like if anyone was to like break that misconception that it has to do with procrastination it's you because you're one of the most methodical you know consistent people i've ever met and i've experienced the exact same thing no matter how long you have on a record it always comes down to the wire no matter what and, you know, I've had records that last, like you said, six months or three weeks. It doesn't matter. So with that said, why don't we get our guest in so that we can uh, get on with this so you can get back to your recording. You know, we were just talking about something that maybe you can chime in on. Joel is literally on the last day of a record now. And we were just talking about how no matter how long you have on a record, somehow it always comes down to the total wire. Have you experienced that as well? <laughs> Or is it just us? That happens with almost every record I do. It's you just use the amount of time that you have, and and then uh, you sort of adjust everything to sort of match that time frame, whether you can finish it in that time frame or not. But yeah, it happens all the time. It's just crazy how it works because I've spent more time on this record than I've spent on anything recently, and it's just like. I mean, I'm literally freaking out because, like I said, I, I, well, like I told AL earlier, I just got my vocals back from my editor yesterday, and I'm like, oh my god, this isn't time edited right, or I don't like how you tuned this word, or, you know, and I'm, I'm just freaking out, and I feel like I have to go back and do it all myself, even though, I mean, it, he probably killed 99% of it, but just the fact that I found one mistake, now I'm like, just shaking because my singer flies out at five o'clock today and I'm like, holy shit. And you know, I'm, I'm getting stems back from like different guys who are programming on it, and it's just 
Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think that one of the best quotes I've ever read about it actually comes from, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him or not, from Eric Rutan. He's a death metal producer and he was in Hate well, is in Hate Eternal, was in Morbid Angel, but he was talking about one of the Hate Eternal records that he did. And he was saying that basically every record ends up having to be taken from him. They're never actually done. So there just comes a point where you got to give it up and that's it. It's done. So I think that that kind of has to do with what it is. No matter what, it'll never be perfect. So you could always just keep on working at it. So with that said, let's get on to some tips and tricks. So I want to start with some questions that we got on the internets. Mr. John Douglas submitted some really pretty good questions here that I I feel like we could start with, but you could talk about this stuff for a year if you had to, but let's just go for your initial reactions to these questions. Just what would be your first instinct? Because, you know, you could write a whole university course on any one of these questions. So I guess first question would be, how do you go about carving frequencies or making space in a mix? That's a good question. I mean, everything, you sort of do have to make space for everything that's in that mix. Definitely a lot of high-passing, low-passing going on, subtracting from things you want to add to other things. You know, everything can't all exist in the same space. So, for instance, a lot of times in bass, I'll carve out or, or high-pass something at, at 80 even, and then uh, or 70, and then push the kick drum a little bit lower. Guitar is definitely high-passing on that to leave more room for the low end of the bass. The same thing with guitars, low-passing them. Because there's, you know, other than noise, there's really not much more going on above 8K in a guitar. So high passing there will make room for your cymbals. You know, that's the usual carving that I'm doing. How far do you usually go down low on your guitars? Because I mean, I feel like sometimes I hear guys go as low as 5K. I mean, and then I know guys more in like the metal side who filter maybe at like 12 or 10. So it's always interesting because I'm kind of like a rock dude. So I usually go like way down. And then I don't know, I guess when I'm mixing metal, I usually don't go down so brutal. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm taking it down to probably about 8K, maybe a little lower. And it sort of gets rid of the hissiness, all the fizz that that sounds weird to me in guitars. And you want to know, there's dudes like Kurt Ballou who will openly say that they, they don't even use low passes on guitars. They'll just maybe do a slight shelf at like 11. So do you ever find that clarity in the guitars disappears sometimes? Like they start to become softer that way. Do you have any ways to actually counter that when, say, you have to do a roll? off down to a certain frequency just to get rid of the nastiness, but it ends up kind of taming the guitars a little too much. Do you have a way to counter that? The other thing that I guess I could do with those guitars is a lot of surgical EQ where I'm taking out some ringing and some other sort of harmonics that are not adding to the sound. And and I think once you get rid of the stuff that's harsh, I mean, I guess you don't have to go down that far. You know, if they start to sound tame, you can back it off a little bit. But at the same time, you know, getting rid of all the stuff that you don't like gives you more of the option to really crank up and turn up that sound once you have it the way that you want it. So maybe you can compensate with, you know, getting soft with just making it fucking loud. Dan, is there an area in guitars when you're carving that just absolutely fucking pisses you off on every single mix? <laughs> like, for example, Joey and I talk about this all the time in our own private conversations about mixing. I hate like 3.2 to 3.4, sometimes 3.8K, and he hates 4K with like a vengeance. And like we destroy 
on both of our work, those frequency ranges just constantly. There's always something in the 3.2 to 3.8 range that I just have to fucking cut on everything. It just pisses me off and I hate that frequency and I would remove it from life if I could. So do you have like a frequency range that just is like the worst thing ever? Every time you hear it, you just immediately go to an EQ and just say die. Oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely something around the two and a half to three and a half K range is fucking annoying. But not only that, you know, there are equal octaves of that. So the 3K range, I'll do a little surgery and then the 6k and then like the 12k just kind of doing tip dips at each one of those octaves really like takes out that frequency range and its harmonics it gets you know really weird there i kind of call like that 2.5 area for me that's like the ear pressure area (laughs) like it gives me a fucking headache it like i hate too much of it it's just like and i guess that's that is a really good question because i've seen lots of people arguing about this but i guess when you are doing surgical eq is it a normal thing for for you to do it in octaves or is that just like when there's a problem that's really really bad and uh you just need to you know basically scorched earth it no i think that uh music exists in octaves you know it's just how it exists so if you're doing something you know in that 3k range check out the 6k and, and the 12 as well and see what's happening there usually it will make a big difference up there I just got to say that I find that 6K, dipping some 6K is something that almost always happens on guitars that I work on or work on with other people. I feel like it just is going to happen. Like, may as well just cut to the chase and cut that shit. (laughs) So next question is, so how much processing, I mean, like EQ and compression, do you do on individual tracks versus buses? I guess that would mean more in terms of like uh, individual snares instead of the snare group or the guitar bus instead of individual guitar tracks, that kind of stuff. Right, right. I think I do a fair amount to, to each one. So like drums all individually get processed, compression to tame them down, a little EQ to carve out things you don't need or add what you want. And then all of those will go to a bus that either get compressed or EQ'd or both. You know, same thing with guitars. I'll do a little surgical EQ on each individual track. Then they come out to a bus that has like a master EQ on it, sometimes a compressor, and then some sort of like stereo widening. So you use stereo widening? Yep. Definitely. Awesome. The reason I say awesome is because I've heard a lot of trash talk about it. And obviously you yeah. can go too yeah. far with it, but what a great move. I'm a stereo widening hater. <laughs> I used to stereo widen my guitars and I never really went like crazy out, but there was a label that I was doing work for once. The owner called me and he's like, dude, every time I put your mix in headphones, it feels like when I crank it really loud. I don't know why he's cranking really loud in headphones, but okay, whatever. So he's like, I feel like the guitars, instead of coming up in front of my face, He's deaf, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) They go around behind my head and they give me a fucking headache and I'm like yeah you know and I kind of just put two and two together I'm like you know I do feel like when I have wideners on it kind of gives me a headache so I stopped doing it and I make up for that with with surgically EQ and summing and like having a good I mean I wish I had a console but I mean I use like a good summing mixer and I feel like that adds that extra you know like my guitars just went out 30% that I can't quite get when I'm mixing straight ITB so I kind of stopped using wideners that's interesting I mean I think it's cool that you guys like Randy Staub uses them and he's like one of my favorite mixers so i think it's fucking great all right so the the problems i've heard with them and have experienced have been the phase weirdnesses but i mean I've never heard any of that weirdness in any of Dan's work or Staub's work. So I guess the next question would 
be how do you get around the phase weirdness with wideners when you're using them? The one trick to that, just don't put a guitar widener on your whole bus. What I do is I'll, I'll it's sort of like a parallel processing. You have your main guitars that are still ripping through the bus, and then you have a bus of that coming off to the widener that's heavily EQ'd, and you tuck that up underneath your main guitar sound. So when you say heavily EQ'd, I mean, is there any particular frequency ranges you would notch out? For example, would you make it more lo-fi and make it wider in like the 800 to 2K range? Or, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen and heard just different guys approach it differently. So I'm kind of curious how you would approach it. Yeah, for me, it's I'm not really taking anything away from that. It's it's more of like adding a shit ton of 800 to it, making it sort of bottom heavy, really bassy, and then tucking oh, okay. that up underneath them. Sweet. I, that's yeah. something I want to play with now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually never really heard it done like that. That's very interesting. But I mean, that's exactly one of those tricks that you hear people talking about where it can literally go either way with them. And it's one of those things where great mixers love it or hate it. So, But I feel like if great mixers love it, there's got to be some way to do it where it doesn't cause those problems. And let me just say something about A&R dudes. I realized that a lot of them have a great heart and some of them have a great ear but i remember andy sneep telling me that he came to america to he was on some trip and he you know was making the rounds in la and new york and all that and he stopped at one a and r guy's office who would always rail him with mixed notes and he noticed that his speakers just his regular yeah. what he listens to everything on speakers yeah were wired out of phase and he <laughs> fixed that for him so uh, it's like you never really know where these people are coming from in the first place sometimes they think they're mixers too just because they listen to a lot of audio and you know they know a little bit about like hey you know the guitar should be are too loud or you know it's a little bit too bright on the hi-hat but they think they know how to actually mix a record that can be really fucking irritating definitely. to deal with. Definitely. Yeah, there, it just depends on how the neurotic versus good advice ratio that they can provide. All right, so next question would be, what kind of stuff do you automate manually versus side-chaining or auto-riding plugins? Stuff that I would do more of the automatic stuff is uh, ducking a bass with a kick drum. So every time that kick drum hits, the bass kind of comes down, makes more room for that kick. Internally, I'll, I'll side-chain uh, the snare drum and the overheads. That way it kind of knocks down the uh, bleed in those overheads and it brings out the cymbals a bit more. I think that's it for sort of like auto stuff and then uh, manually doing rides. It's like to emphasize pieces, you know, make a chorus louder. I'll do a master fader ride, uh, riding vocals so they sit in the mix. You know, that kind of stuff you have to do by hand. I always thought that those vocal rider plugins and stuff, bass rider, never really worked right. I've never even tried them. I don't even know what they do. Everybody I know who tried them was like, this sounds like a great idea. Let's let's try this shit. And uh, three minutes later, we're like, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I really don't know anyone who's had a different experience with that. I hate them personally. What's the concept behind it? What, what does it do? It reads your track and it makes the automation. So like this word in amplitude or RMS, I'm not sure how it calculates it, is quieter than this one. So we're going to jack that word and bring this one down, you know? So there's like a certain, it's like having a compressor kind of, but it manually calculates it with math and goes through and takes every note and that song or whatever you're trying trying to automate and makes it pretty much level within the tolerance that you set in the plugin, which is a great idea in theory, but you know, it just, I don't know. <laughs> I guess how it's different than a compressor is that it's not going to affect your tone. 
I know that you can use compressors to not affect tone. That's like not a part of it at all. It's strictly volume on paper, but that doesn't really do what it says it's going to right, do. Right, right. Maybe we're just all stupid and not using it correctly. You know, that's, that's that, possible. That's that's entirely possible. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said for reading the manuals on plugins and actually doing what the company suggests. I've actually solved lots of my own problems with plugins by just reading the instructions. And especially with plugins that are made by non-native English speakers. I'm saying this because Waves are not an American company. Sometimes there's things that language-wise or process of thinking wise is just going to be mm. different because different cultures process information in different ways that you know read things from front to back or not there's different ways of saying the same thing too as somebody who's married internationally it's amazing like I w- okay here's a story i was at daycare the other day real quick and i picked my kid up and the lady was like your daughter's being really bossy i'm like what do you mean because she always says papa you're going to blah 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 and i'm going to blah 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 well in english that sounds really weird and like aggressive but in russian that's how you say it you just like you're gonna blah 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 and it's not rude at all just like okay cool instead of can you blah 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 it's the same thing my dad's israeli and he always says close the lights um, <laughs> instead of instead of turn off the lights hmm. yeah close the lights but the you know that it's funny and all but i guess when it comes to a complex operation like a plug-in those types of subtle differences i think in language will translate into how easy the plug-in is to understand and so i've literally solved problems for myself with certain of those plugins by reading the instructions or watching their three minute tutorial and being like, oh, why is that button there? That is the weirdest place to put that button, but that button makes all the sense in the world. So yeah, maybe we are just using waves right or wrong, but I doubt it. <laughs> Moral of the story, sell all plugins, get hardware. <laughs> yeah, true. And speaking of that, uh, what's on your master bus setup? Holy shit. Uh, master bus, I have uh, two compressors in series. And uh, love it, and e- hell EQ. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I live Which in ones? compression land, so there, there are two SSL compressors. So the console compressor into another outboard console compressor, and then into a Filtech mastering EQ. Now, do you have those compressors set at different values? Because I'll give you an example. Uh, real quickly, I mix hybrid in in my I have two summing mixers and I have my instrumental mics go into a bus compressor which I use an SSL G comp and yep. then it goes out into another summing mixer where I add in all my vocals and then I compress that in through my Shadow Hills mastering compressor where I use the two compressors in series so technically yep. I use like three and I have them all set at different attack and release times based on what I wanted to do so I'm kind of curious how you use that because if you have two of them I don't know go ahead yeah well first one is set for sort of impact so it's going to be uh slow attack fast release to make it slam it could be 210 or, or 20 to 1 uh ratio i'm sorry 2 4 10 and then uh the outboard guy uh is set more of like a, a peak protector it's uh it's going to be a faster attack slower release usually at 4 to 1 or 10 to 1 and the the eq sits in between the two so compressor eq compressor that's awesome i think that having two hardware compressors on your two bus once you kind of get it down is really freaking cool you can really cause a lot of damage but once you kind of figure it out it's definitely worth experimenting with yeah i mean it's the master bus is is a lot of people are afraid of it and some people just go for it when i was first growing up i was very conservative with everything that i did i always didn't want to do too much damage and uh i remember at a young age i had uh andy wallace mix a song for me and i got to sit in and just kind of make notes with them and you know sit down at the console and you can see very soft guitar came in on the intro the compressor hit about 4 db 
of gain reduction then. And when it hit the chorus, <laughs> it was hitting like 12, about 12 dB of gain reduction in the chorus. I'm like, oh, well, that's how you're supposed to do it. There it is. How hard do you usually go on your gain reduction? I mean, pretty hard. It usually sits between four and eight on my first compressor, probably a little bit less on the other. That's fucking, that's awesome. <laughs> that's like real man's compression. Well, you just kind of live in that land. I'm guessing that you're mixing into it the whole time. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I get that question a lot. That's why I just asked it. It's one of those, well, of course <laughs> you would mix into it a lot. But uh, that's really, really interesting to me that with Andy Walls, you're seeing it go even to minus 12 because I have grown up around dudes who are afraid of getting more than three or four. Yeah. And I always felt like there was something missing in those mixes. And it just totally makes sense. It's like, I remember this one time that Colin Richardson mixed something for me. And I was watching, for instance, how he does his Master Fader rides. And, you know, I see most of the thinking about that being like, so, you you know, you go up one dB on a chorus or whatever, or maybe two dB on the final one or whatever. Very conservative moves. This guy had the end of the song like six dB louder than the beginning. <laughs> yeah, wow. he was doing some major rides through this amazing Neve board. But, I mean, it's a big part of how he mixes and he fucking goes for it. It just blows my mind when you find out that like the big boys are doing stuff that's just extreme and also in some weird way the kind of extremity that you would expect with a beginner who's just feeling stuff out and thinking it sounds cool so going for it before they find out that that stuff is quote-unquote wrong to do so that's why it's kind of fascinating to me when I find out that really really big shot dudes will do Hmm. those super extreme moves that lots of people tuck down on Because it's almost like they learned stuff all along the way and didn't let formal education or internet education or stuff in magazines really influence what they thought was right. So that said, let me ask you another question that we've got in here, which is being that you're a heavily out-of-the-box guy, how do you decide between in-the-box and out-of-the-box as you mix on your console? Like, what are the limitations and benefits of going either way for you? And when do you make the decision, this is going to be a hardware comp versus software or EQ or whatever? Sure, sure. Sure. Well, on my console, the only thing that you can automate are the faders. So anything other than that, you know, if I'm looking for a certain sound that I can only get from a plug-in, if it's, you know, an effect or something like that, then that's something I'll do in the box. Most of my compression is, is out of the box. I'm trying to think of what, what I would do or how I would choose each one. I'm not really sure. I remember Will Putney writing once, I, he said this online once, that the way he decides is if he finds himself using a certain plug a lot like it goes to the same plugin the same way too many times then he'll try to replace it with the real thing right yeah i mean the only difference being that if you buy a hardware unit you only have one whereas a plugin you could have a hundred of them (laughs) well here's a question for you based off that dan do you feel like when you have like an analog compressor and this is something i have a really hard time explaining in words but i swear to god i can feel it and hear it and it's like really obvious to me and because not a lot of guys mix analog anymore it's kind of like i got no one to talk to about this stuff (laughs) 
<laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm lonely in my experience. I was kind of curious. Do you feel like analog compressors act and react differently to audio than the digital like emulations? Because I feel like there's a certain, I call it like Michael Brower calls it like wavy. There's like a certain movement, like a front to back and like a pulse and like a, I, I just call it like a movement or an energy when I, that and like a, it's like it comes back at you and forward. And like, there's like a movement to the, the audio and the way that the analog compressor acts. And like when I run into a digital compressor, it doesn't matter which one, no matter how, you know, I, I've literally tried almost everything I can think of or find, no matter how good the emulation, it feels like it just flattens. Like it feels like it doesn't have that movement character to it. It's really like an obscure, abstract thing. And for someone who's never heard it, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But I think I'm either going crazy or, you know, everybody else is off on some weird island and hasn't figured it out. So does that make any sense to you? Can you relate to that at all? Am I out of my mind? Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, you know, when I first started, I was all out of the box. You know, as I progressed, I moved to being mostly in the box with uh, some outboard gear and then kind of came full circle again to being mostly out of the box. You know, the headroom is different on plugins. They, they react differently to uh, gear. You know, mostly, you know, it just basically comes down to limitations of processing. If we had infinite amount of processing, uh, we could accurately replicate piece of hardware and it would sound identical to it. But the problem is we don't have infinite processing. We have shortcuts and we have, you know, calculated math and stuff like that to sort of emulate what the analog piece of gear is doing. But, you know, I, I remember years ago I was mixing something in the box. It was all completely in the box and, you know, it just sounded flat, didn't sound right. And I took off like an SSL emulated plug-in on my bus and, and I patched in the real bus compressor and I'm like, oh, this is it. <laughs> this is, that's the sound I'm missing. I know that feeling. I went up to a place with a full SSL. Do you know Dan Mulsh at the Sound Mine? Uh, I do not. Okay, he's kind of in Pennsylvania. He's over by you, so that's why I was curious. Okay. Um, and when I went to Dan's studio, and like we took our my ITB versions where I used all the same plugins, and we compared them against like just running through the console, I was just like, what the fuck? It was like my guitars were like twenty percent wider, and he's literally not doing anything to them, and just you know, and I had like the VBC on, and I think Stephen Slate makes amazing products, but it just like blew my mind how much of a difference there was between the emulation and like the real freaking deal. And we just sat back and just A, B. And we were, I was just like, wow, that's, I'm going to go. I, I was pissed because I'm like, Dan, you're going to cost me a ton of money because now I have to go buy a bunch of hardware to get that sound because I fell in love with it. And ever since I've kind of, you know, I went for, I came up mixing ITB my whole life. And then about four years ago, I started just buying brutal amounts of outboard and selling kidneys and just, you know, every <laughs> dollar I could muster to pick up some cool gear. I mean, I'm glad I did it. I, I really just love that sound and the organics of it. It's a different feel. I mean, I love what ITB does but analog just does something completely different and it's it's cool to have both sometimes yeah i think that what dan is saying about the limitations of computing is very, very true because another place where you find that is in drum replacement, that's why cymbal replacement sucks just about always. And But why, you know, it's gotten pretty good with actual shells. The amount of instances of a cymbal that you need to record in order to get it to sound just like a real cymbal is pretty much beyond what your normal computer can handle right now. So it's not that you couldn't figure that out. It's just it's just a little ways away before it'll sound at that point just because the literally, you know, symbol is swiveling and changing in shape and changing in distance and so many different factors going in to that sound 
hitting the microphone that it's it's just beyond yep. what your computer can handle. So hard to do. And that's coming from a guy who's got a drum library out. I mean, just like, for example, the harmonic buildup on a ride when they're pinging away on a part, you know, there's like that cumulative resonance and, you know, you just can't, <laughs> if somebody knows how to, uh, compute that mathematically, please contact me because you got a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that and that's what I'm saying, though. It's not that it's not possible. Is I'm just saying that, you know, it's computers that maybe the government or Google have some computers that that's could possible. handle it you yeah. know, in real time. Nano yeah. So, you know, Joel and I were just talking. So you use Cubase? I do use Cubase. Yep. Awesome. So that said, we have a question here about Pro Tools. I guess it doesn't really count, but I want to see if maybe there's a similar issue. And here, I'll read you the question, and I just want to see if there's an equivalent. The last few mixes I've done... I've been routing all tracks to a dummy output bus and then use sends for all actual routing. According to Michael Brower's engineer, it's the only way to keep Pro Tools 100% phase accurate with tons of parallel processing. So that said, is there any particular methods that you route stuff or route stuff out? Or in Cubase, is the phase accuracy just assumed? Well, I guess the thing that he's talking about here is delay compensation. So that's the question right there is yes. delay compensation. Cubase itself, uh, when you use external plugins and stuff like that, has a, an amazing delay compensation calculator. You just kind of hit a button, it pings input and output, calculates the round trip, and it, it turns out to be you know 100% phase accurate. Now, as far as in-the-box plugins and stuff like that, I mean, you're sort of at the mercy of what the plugin designer is reporting that the delay compensation should be for your computer to sort of react to that. I'm not really sure how Pro Tools works, but I believe in Cubase and Nuendo. Individual channels can be delayed, compensated, but I think once you get to groups and stuff like that, they are not compensated. I could be wrong, but I, I have found that sometimes like if I'm doing parallel processing with something in the box, I'll have to add an instance of the same plugin to you know other things just to make it all line up. So it's, it could be totally true, but I'm not really doing any, any parallel processing per se in the computer that's you know going through groups or stuff like that. So I've never experienced that one. And I guess that said, when you're routing out to your console, do you pretty much have it set up the same way every time and then make minor adjustments or are you going from scratch every time? No, I definitely have like a, a, a process that I like certain things, uh, certain drum compressors and the guitar wideners and, and bass and stuff like that. So it's sort of like, you know, I have everything sort of patched in the way that I like it. Add that to whatever they give me. And the reason I'm asking that is because we got a question that says, how do you feel about recalls since you're mixing on a board? Yeah, well, I mean, the console has total recall. You got to take notes on all the stuff that you have outboard. I know we live in a society of ADD where people want you to open up a song and change one little thing and print it and be exactly the same. You know, a lot of people request that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you sort of lose the idea that what you're doing is precious. You know, they, they sort of think that you can recreate and make anything at the, the drop of a hat and have it be exactly the same. But what we do is precious. And, you know, you really have to think hard about, well, do I really want to ride up that one hi-hat hit to compromise maybe everything else changing? <laughs> so uh, get a good assistant. Yeah, yeah. get a, a good assistant. <laughs> that takes care of the recall problem. I mean, mine's awesome. I just, he, he has sheets and he just boom, 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 done. It's yep. not even that big of a deal. I also don't mix on a console, so <laughs> it could be harder. <laughs> well, I mean, all in all, it takes about 30 or 40 minutes to set up a mix, uh, you know, to recall a mix from your notes. So it's not the end of the world. If there are recalls, I just kind of wait until the end of the mix session, and then we go back and make adjustments on songs. And usually by the end of that time, 
you know, 12, 14 days, people sort of not get used to, but they don't freak out about something that they may not have liked. They live with it. And then sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's a huge fucking disaster and you got to recall it. And, you know, you spend half the day fixing a song. Do you get recalls ever months later? Uh, the, the only recalls I've gotten way later are uh, like radio mixes or radio edits, stuff like that. But I've never like finished a project and had it sit around for months and then, you know, make changes and then put it out. Usually it's it's in and then it's out. So it's, it's, so it's part of the process. It's just part of your general mixing process. You know, I'm sure that that just forces you to commit that much harder which is a great thing to do anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually what I like to do is, is get in early, mix the song, have it out to the band by dinner. I go home, have dinner with the wife, come back. They have mixed notes, make adjustments, print it, and then uh, go home. Wow. If only everything was that quick and easy. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps to tell the band up front, like, listen, I'm mixing this on a board. It's all analog. You know, you yep. guys need to commit. If not, piss off. I'm not recalling a month from now or I'm going to charge you up the ass. And then they go, OK, cool. And it's amazing how decisive people quickly get when you give them a little bit of, listen, I'm not going to let you just walk all over me. And this isn't going to be like that. You know, I can't just hit load and then print, you know, to raise the high head up 0. 0.20 dB and add you know, point two at eight K it's not going to happen. So right. just let's get it right and do it correct the first time and be decisive and live with it. Cause it's not the end of the world that the hi hats, you know, a half DB too quiet on the record. Literally no one cares, but well, yeah, that right. it handles yep. a lot of those mixed notes where uh, it's just one guy wanting something different, but not necessarily better. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I learned from doing this a long time is that you have to coordinate everybody, get everybody on the same page, let them know what's happening. And one, one rule that I, I usually tell bands is that you can make any comment you want, but you cannot comment on your own instrument. So if you're a bass player, you cannot make a fucking comment on the bass. If everyone else says there's something wrong with the bass, then maybe there's something wrong with the bass. If you're tweaking out about something, it's probably personal and no one cares about it. I feel like that should be put on a poster board in every studio around the entire world. Yeah. And like laminated and like a light should be directed on it so it draws attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. It's, yeah, it's, that's, it's old school shit. Great sentiment. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy though how when we do mix critiques, like we can tell which instrumentalist in the band mixed the song. Like if it's a vocalist mixing his own stuff, right, yeah. or the drummer is the dude in the band doing it, you can always tell from the mix because that's where it leans. Like the vocals are too loud or the bass too louder or whatever. So it's amazing how true it is that you need to get people to stop focusing on their own instrument and listening to the bigger picture. But uh, that said, I think that's all the questions we have for this one, man. You want to do a rapid fire one-off maybe? Yeah, do it. I'll name like an instrument and you'd be like, all right, here's my favorite or whatever. Cause I feel like that's something kids would definitely be interested in. Like, dude, Dan Corneff uses X on his guitars. It's all I'm ever using ever again. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Tracking or mixing? Uh, whatever. <laughs> All right. we'll, we'll leave that element of mystery for it. So, all right, I'll name off an instrument. You tell me in five seconds what you would what would be like your go-to. So, kick drum. Kick drum, Beta 52, SSL, mic pre, compressor EQ, straight to tape. Vocals. Uh, vocals, screaming, SM7 to a Telefunken mic pre to 1176 to a Gates SA39. Singing is, is a little more delicate, like a C12 into a, the SSL or a Neve mic pre to 1176. Distorted guitar. Distorted guitar, 57 and a Royer 122. 
Telefunken V676 mic pre, uh, no compression, right to the computer. Bass. Bass. Jeez. That's, uh, I love the Sansamp stuff. RBI is High great. High five on that one. Just has a natural tone to it. RE20 on the cabinet. Usually uh, an LA4 compressor on, on all those guys. Right to the computer. Djembe. <laughs> Dude. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, I've recorded a lot of uh, these Spanish metal bands. It's they, they got them in there. It's crazy. All right, Djembe, let's go. Then. All right. <laughs> 421 on top, uh, D112 on the bottom. Something really hard, like the SSL mic pre-compressor. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. That was awesome. No, thank you. Yeah, man. Just want to tell you how much we appreciate you being on here for our very first Tips and Tricks episode. That's oh, awesome. I love this shit. So, so that, that said, man, we're going to sign off now. But uh, thanks again. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast is brought to you by creative live the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting engineering mixing and mastering go to creativelive.com audio to start learning now the unstoppable recording machine podcast is also brought to you by protone pedals the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere go to protonepedals.com to take your tone to the next level to ask us questions suggest topics and interact Visit URMAcademy.com and subscribe today.